Hey, B. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question? Always. What's the one thing when we travel that we always make sure we find? Oh, coffee. You know, bad coffee makes my brain angry. And we've been a lot of places. We've had a lot of coffee. But when we're home, there's only one place that we get coffee from. Yeah. Hacienda Real in Costa Rica. We found this place when we were in Costa Rica a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's a micro roastery using only Costa Rican beans. Their blend is a mix of Arabica and Peaberry. And if you don't know about Peaberry, you need to find out about it because mm. it is amazing. It takes all the bitterness out. All the bitterness out. And we place orders and it's shipped directly to our door. You can get light, medium, or dark roast. You can get ground. You can get whole bean. And it is roasted to order. So there is a date stamped on your coffee so you know when it was roasted and bagged. It's good for a year after you order it. And it is the best coffee that we have ever had. So click the link in our show notes or go to goldenbean.net and use the offer code COFCHR20 for 10% off your order. Hacienda Real. Keep your brain happy. Hey, Dante. Hey, B. Looking pretty smart in your undies. Thanks. I've been doing my deads. <laughs> oh, I can see that. But it's not just what's in them. It's what's on them. Oh yeah, I got on my smart-ass undies. They're not just super comfy. They've got cheeky motivations on them that keep me in the right state of mind. Oh yeah, like we could all use a little brain lift these days, am I right? They're also lovingly made from sustainable, low-impact materials. So we can love the planet and cover our asses all at the same time. Motivate your ass with smart-ass undies. Click the link in the show notes or on the Things We Love page on our website. And remember to enter the discount code CHEATINGONFEAR10 for 10% off your order. Smart ass undies. Cheeky and comfy. Hi everyone, this is Dante. And I'm Beatrice. And this is Cheating on Fear. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. So this week we welcome back Dr. Trina Orchard. Yes, from Western University. And she is speaking to us about her extensive work around the world, her research into sex work and sex workers. Yes. She sent us a bunch of articles. I'm going to link a few of them. One of them is a chapter in a book. So I'll, I'll, I'll put whatever links I can for people to, if they want to do some deeper diving into Dr. Orchard's work. Yeah. Trigger warning. It's not easy to read. Yeah. It's heavy. It's heavy stuff. It's heavy. Not, not just like, not academically like it is, but emotionally it's heavy. And she talks about that too, the emotionality mm-hmm. of, of doing this kind of research. And in the context of what happened in Georgia a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. there are some themes that come up in her work that are still going on right now. Even today in 2021. Yeah, like the, right this moment. So she is a favorite of ours. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we hope you enjoy the podcast this week enjoy the episode why are you whispering i don't know <laughs> enjoy the episode everyone good morning trina how are you i'm doing pretty well pretty well considering it's a very gloomy day but i've got my turquoise necklace and earrings on so channeling some warmth there yeah that certainly works warmth of the southwest yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Remi- reminds reminds you of ocean and beach isn't that nice 
Yeah. And also the necklace was a gift from one of my former teaching assistants. So it's kind of nice. That's so nice. Homage to Monica. Very nice. Oh, Monica. (laughs) I love you, Monica. We're very happy to have you back. I, this is, this is a, a little bit of a different topic than what we had last time. And when we planned on doing this podcast, we, we hadn't really like, we didn't have Atlanta. And so Sadly, last week we heard the news out of Atlanta that there had been a, um, a shooting of eight women. Eight women were killed. Six were Asian Americans. And it made me thankful that we had you back this week because I, I thought of you as we kind of jump into this topic. We wanted to get into your research into sex work and and all of the time that you spent speaking with sex workers and learning about their lives and some of the issues that, that come out. There's a, there's so much troubling about the Atlanta shooting. Obviously there's a lot of talk about the anti-Asian sentiment in the United States that's bubbled up. And I'm sure we're not immune from that in this, in this country. And obviously coupled with the coronavirus and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I, I think what's what's not being spoken about as much is that this is also about anti-sex work. And there was an article in Rolling Stone that laid out a lot of the thoughts that I had had as well. And, and it's a fantastic article, but they talked about how the Washington Post and the New York Times had posted articles linking massage parlors to sex trafficking. And so one of the articles you were very generous in sending me some of your greatest hits with, <laughs> with, with your work in the last few years. And one of the themes that jumped out was about this erroneous conflation of sex work and sex trafficking. Can you address where, what the origins of that are and what some of the, some of the complications with that are and the problems with that? Yeah, it's a really important, complicated sort of set of overlapping issues, for sure. And I think it's something that has been occurring with sort of increased fervor in the last 10 10 to 15 years. Um, So it's not a recent phenomenon, but it has been growing. And some people cite, you know, changes in 1990, the fall of like the former Russian Russian Empire and different kinds of global political sort of events that spawned new interests in trafficking. And we have an idea about trafficking sort of in that 90s, early 2000s era um, as sort of sometimes it's referred to as the Natasha trade. Hmm. So a lot of the dominant ideas about trafficking up until, you know, the last 10 or 15 years has been that it's kind of this global thing that happens external to, let's say, Canadian borders. And Hmm. it involves, you know, poor women from Eastern Europe being shuttled or women from different Asian continents being used and and shuttled all all around the globe for for the pleasures of various kinds of clientele and organizations. And while that is one kind of international trafficking. Um, There has long been domestic forms of trafficking that I think have been ignored. And then they have been taken up more recently in the last 10 or 15 years. It's, you know, you can relate it to different shifts in uh, political governance, you know, different kinds of conservative governments 
different kinds of source, social organizations that get very inflamed and uh, concerned and want to respond in moral and social ways to what is seen as this plight. And it's often seen as the plight of poor women with no control over their lives who are just rendered sexual objects. So lots of different kinds of, of myths, lots of different histories. And there's also even taking a much larger step back, there's the realization that trafficking in different forms of slavery, whether it's sexual or economic, have been taking place since pretty much the dawn of human time. Mm -hmm. People have always been bought and sold for all sorts of reasons. And I think it's interesting to study this kind of phenomenon and look at the points in time where it, it's, it raises its head again. Right. So in, in sort of the more recent version of the explosion of trafficking, as it's often referred to, and it, I don't really think it has exploded. People are just paying attention to it in different ways. It's exploded in the media. That's mm -hmm. in the media. Yeah. And I think that there are certain aspects of trafficking that have changed, you know, with respect to migration, you know, that there are lots of different immigration, that, that kind of thing. I think that there are many different faces of, of, of trafficking that have emerged recently. Mm -hmm. And the way in which sex trafficking is often conflated with sex work, that's a whole complicated phenomenon as well. And I think it's often done as a way to sort of justify different kinds of campaigns, you know, save the women, save the children, this kind of really, you know, savior driven kind of thing. And to critique this, as I have found out many, many, many times, it can be a very dangerous position because people they respond in a moral way and they respond with a lot of emotional sort of reaction and like, how dare you? How can you not care about these people? And it's not, we don't care about them. It's that a, I think it's important wherever possible to listen to what they are saying, what their yeah. voices are. Trafficking exists hundred percent everywhere, just like sex work. It, it exists in every part of the globe, mm -hmm. right? It looks different for sure, but it exists because we do these things to one another for all sorts of reasons. And we always will. You know, it's how do we want to respond in a meaningful way that isn't just about arresting the traffickers, but that is about addressing different kinds of social and racialized and gendered vulnerability, you know, that make people more, more likely to become involved. I think that's such a great point that you make. One of the things that makes the Atlanta shooting so, so complicated is that there's so many aspects of it that you can't pull apart. How do you distinguish how do you isolate race and misogyny and anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-sex work sentiment and shame and the 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 threat of sex addiction and that was something mm -hmm. they they actually spoke to Dr. David Lay for the article because the shooter has blamed his his actions on sex addiction right. and 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 that comes from, we, we were just talking about how it's a very dubious diagnosis, that there's really no, no underlying cause for that. Or, or Right. But in, in making that claim, you know, it's sort of an attempt at pseudo-medicalizing it. Oh, it's yeah. a condition. Oh, okay. So let's divorce the individual responsibility. The yeah. poor guy has all these things. So let's, you know, again, re refocus the attention on the shooter. Mm -hmm. refocus the attention on all of his on on his particular plight 
Mm -hmm. Right. And so there are certain things that are really getting magnified in the Atlanta situation and certain things, as you mentioned in the beginning, that are getting looked at through a very, very narrow lens. And Mm -hmm. that has to do with the relationship between sex, sex work and this particular form of violence. Mm. What, What was the impetus, if I could ask you, for you to go into this this area of research because going through your articles and they're it's fascinating to to read because I like the stories I like like you, you were talking about we have to listen to the experiences of of people and it's not just women that's another thing that it the narrative sort of leaves out the other groups that are involved in sex work and because I think I think it makes it more more of a palatable thing for people to pay attention to if it's just women right like yeah and that's real it's a it's a direct outcome of like the different sort of things that women get caught up in or are forced to exist within when you're talking about a patriarchal system mm-hmm. right the it, woman is the enemy but she's also the victim <laughs> that is always being determined by the male order right so she could be anything through his voice, as it were. So, so how? What, what? If I could ask you, what is? What was the impetus for you to to dive into this? It was a complete accident, because my masters, I had done work with Indigenous teenagers and community members, and was going to go back to that same community to do the PhD. Was going to look at different kind of things, and got all the grants to do that. And so, I was really excited and looking forward to doing that because. The people in the community of Kawachikamach, they're just incredibly special people. And it was such a monumental experience. I was really looking forward to going back. Um, My PhD supervisor was becoming involved in different kinds of initiatives with respect to HIV AIDS. And the first one that he became involved with was was based in India. And it was looking at a special group of women and girls primarily, who participated in complicated system of sexual exchange that has many, many uh, centuries of, of history. And no one really knew the relationship between this particular population and HIV in the contemporary setting. But none of like the big like people involved in, in the grant um, had a chunk of time to be able to spend on the ground in India doing that formative ethnographic lay of the land research. And so he posed it to me as a new PhD topic. Okay. Wow. And uh, yeah, I was like, um, <laughs> okay, where is India? Like not quite like that. But it, I, I had not done any kind of extensive international travel, uh, you know, Europe, right? That's a left turn from what you were planning on doing. All the left turns. So I was like into the issues of sex work, India. And I also made the shift from more traditional cultural anthropology to medical anthropology. Everything was new and wild and huge and stressful and amazing. So that's how I got into it. And, And after the PhD experience in India, one of the things that was problematic is that I didn't have enough time to be able to become anywhere near fluent in the local language. Mm. And so I made the decision afterwards that A, I want to continue doing work with different groups of people in sex work, but they need to speak English because I need to be able to do a better job in terms of really being able to speak mm-hmm. with them in an informal way uh, and not rely on a translator to, you know, to collect the data. And then I was in Vancouver in the downtown east side and then came uh, to London. So that's sort of the overarching transit Mm -hmm. I have been through in terms of sex work. 
Vancouver must have been quite an experience. Yeah, it was. Uh, and you know what? I felt well prepared for it, having mm. been to India. Mm-hmm. And and that that would have been so difficult too when you when you're trying to to get information and and for people to communicate with you and it's going through a couple of filters. Maybe they're not comfortable with the translator. Maybe the translator is missing some things. Maybe like that, that, must, have, that must have been so difficult. Yeah. That, wow. And, and I, I read that article as well, like uh, about how you're fighting against very like deeply entrenched cultural traditions there. And that's, that, that couldn't have been easy for any, for anyone. <laughs> quite a it's like wow thanks women or for me it's like why is she here again what does she want to know why is she like so there's a million different things we can chat about with respect to india but yeah they mean the indian experience it it was it was phenomenal it was just um and as is often the case when you're doing field work you know it's never the people who you're speaking with that it's i mean the stories were heavy Mm. the stories were heavy and very few of those people are still alive that's the whole thing keep in mind this was over 20 years ago but (laughs) you know it was being a woman in India that was harder than spending time with these women and girls it was living in India that was more stressful and being part of a a broader project this was being managed by let's just say it you know a middle-aged white man who really didn't have that much understanding of how things are, are on the ground those complications are what contributed to the real profound trauma that I experienced during that, during that moment in my life and my professional career. Like I, I'm not saying that it was easy to hear the stories and, and to observe the women's lives and, that, and the lives of their children, but, you know, they were cool with me. They were respectful. They were curious. They were fun. They were interesting they treated me with such respect, just like I just give it up to them. And, you know, field work is supposed to be hard. Yeah. But it was hard in ways that I could never have anticipated for things that don't have anything to do with the research per se, but with the broader experience. Mm. Yeah, I think any, any, any one of us that have done anthropological field work, especially when you're in that kind of cultural context, yeah. that's a very real and good supervisors will, will do their best to prepare you for it. But that cultural shock of going into somewhere completely different from your experience combined with language barriers and, and those kinds of things, it, it's, it's exhausting work before you even get started to yes, do the actual work. And I, I can appreciate the language side of it as well, because when yes. I first started working in Latin America, I didn't have any Spanish. And then I, I learned and went back and the experience was completely different, not having to use a translator, being able to joke and and create connections and stuff like that. So I can understand you wanting to, to be able to communicate, you know, fluently in a language with your, with your subjects. So you could really tease out those details because there are nuances that are, that are tough to pick up and yeah, translators and interpreters. Yeah, that it's really good ones are hard to find. Yes, they are. Yeah, that can give you that unfiltered, just what's being said mm-hmm. without clouding it or coloring it or applying their own value judgment on it, just giving you the straight stuff. Yeah. So I, the the emotionality of this work, mm-hmm. I I wanted to tell you that I spent a good amount of time reading your work and. I mean, what, what do you call me? A, a campfire marshmallow? Yeah. <laughs> just, 
<laughs> crusty on the outside and like squishy gooey on the inside. Oh my God. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm, I'll be truthful with you. It was very mm-hmm. difficult to read. Um, I, could, I could see it in B when she was reading it. And, and cause as you know, it's heavy subject matter and it was, it was hitting you hard. It was, it was yeah. hitting me very hard because I, I work, mm-hmm. I work with a lot of young women and so pretty vac pretty vacant. You can yeah. put that in mm-hmm. the, that, that was one of the articles that I wanted to speak with you about, because mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of things that are front and center and with, with, the this sort of push from the right that is let's be honest it's an anti-sex movement anti-sex worker anti-sex anti you know pro like a lot of a lot of shame around sex and sexual expression and sexual identity and so this one hit me really hard because of of what these young girls were subjected to. And, and this, this I think was with some of the research that you did in London, in and around London. Yeah. And I think one of the things that really jumped out at me was that behaviors that are so normal for teenaged girls, and just to go, I don't mean to keep hitting this, but that conflation of trafficking and sex work. And then there was in this, in this work, there was a conflation of just being a normal teenager. Hmm. You, yeah. you noted that young girls were subjected to increased familial, societal, political surveillance under the auspices of protecting them from trafficking. And that's where I think the, the, the explosion in the media really hurts a lot of people, more people than it's helping. Mm. Because you look at normative behaviors of teenage girls and just teenagers in general, and boys, it's totally fine. But girls, all of a sudden, their parents are locking them in their rooms or putting trackers on on them or limits on because, well, we don't want you to get trafficked. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that that book chapter uh, is, I forget the full title of it, but the beginning is Pretty Vacant, which I took from a Sex Pistols album. So great. But I thought it was a really evocative title as well, because it's like young women are often seen as pretty, but they're often rendered hollow because different different ideas and moralizations and directives and protective behaviors in quotations, very restricting behaviors are often poured, poured into them as it were. Mm. So that in that chapter, I was examining the really troubling you know, rise in not only the trafficking discourse, but the way that certain, and it's a very local paper, the way Mm -hmm. that certain agencies that are working in London who um, have long been involved in different kinds of like domestic violence movements, very um, second wave feminism, view all sex work as a product of male violence against women, which is obviously really problematic and only like a fraction of the reality of the diversity of different kinds of sex work and who's involved and why a lot of people fucking choose to do it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Don't exclude them because it doesn't align with your particular moralized vision of what people should do and what they should not do and what should happen to those who do not conform. So this agency, which has received multiple very large grants from the federal, provincial, I think even municipal funding, certainly support, political support at the municipal level, 
And they're very involved in identifying people who have been trafficked. And, you know, basically they use the kind of language about saving and protecting. I'm not saying that some people don't need to be saved and protected. That's not the point. The point is the way in which this organization, with in partnership with certain <laughs> local press, press media, um, they published different sort of stories about the rise in trafficking. We have to respond. Everybody get involved. We've got the police on board. We're going to, you know, we're, we're, we're responding to this. But a lot of those paper articles also included like tips to look for with respect to how do you identify, how do you know if someone, how can you see someone who's being trafficked? Well, A, you usually can't fucking see them. That's a problem. <laughs> B, the things that they had on this item on, on this, like itemized on this list in terms of what to look for. And it was completely a, a feminized discourse. It was all about young women. It struck me as someone who spent a lot of time looking at adolescents in all different kinds of contexts. I'm like, you know, stays out at night. You know, you know, conflict with parents, different kinds of things. There were certain things that were 100%, you know, if someone is, is branded or tattooed with someone's new name, like that could be, you know, a, a, a warning a, sign. Yeah. But it's not always because sometimes we make bad decisions with tattoos. <laughs> sometimes we don't. We usually try not to. But sometimes, anyways, these things seem to be remarkably similar to what most people go through when they are coming of age. And I thought, wow, so this is an example of, you know, the criminalization of girlhood mm-hmm. under the auspices of protecting them from trafficking as being used as, as the omnipotent evil. But it seems like it's a way just to reinforce parental, familial, and state control over the bodies and behaviors of young women who might do things that, you know what, people might not like. And it's also wrapped up in the trafficking discourse. How can anyone critique it? And that, to me, was the most insidious thing. It was the smartest thing on their part. Yes. But it's like, guess what? I happen to live in this city, motherfucker. And I am going to talk about this because you keep getting all the press. You keep getting all the money. Some of the work you're doing is fine, but a lot of it isn't. And you know what? It's the media's job. It's a lot of people's job to present a more complicated story that is a critique of these savior organizations. It's not good enough. And it's fucking embarrassing. You know, my, my sex work colleagues and other people in the industry, they're like, what is happening in London? What, who is this organization? How is this happening? It created, it was just, it did not just have impacts at this level. It was being observed by many people with complete disdain and embarrassment and a lot of concern. It, 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 it just read to me like a complete removal of agency from these young women under the auspices of moral panic. Yes, exactly. It, it was a moral panic that just removed. It's just easier if we just lock these women down mm-hmm. and... And then they'll be safe from trafficking and that'll be fine. But, I, you know, I obviously we didn't know each other when we were teenagers. I really yeah. wish that we did because <laughs> I feel like we could have gotten into some shit. <laughs> but but I was thinking about my own behavior as a teenaged girl and it reminded me and, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, like if this if this was yeah. a thing when I was a teenager. Yeah. I don't know what my parents would have done. I did all yeah. of these things. I mean, aside from like the tattoo, I waited till I was older for that one. But, but yeah. there were a lot of behaviors that I exhibited and it wasn't because I was being trafficked. It was because I was a teenage girl and I, that was my way of forging my independence and learning about exactly. who I was and experimenting and having sex and enjoying my life. Like it, and, and why is it okay for young boys to do that? 
and not okay for young girls. And this, it, it really, this one really pissed me off reading mm-hmm. about these organizations that, mm-hmm. and, and parents are so terrified of that. And even all the memes and weird stuff on Facebook that parents and dads, no, no shade post about rules for dating my daughter or, you know, these, these parents that become gatekeepers of their children's sexuality. Usually they're female children, female children. It's really fucking creepy. Like it's really weird. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, just removes the agency from these young women. And I work with a lot of young women and they have agency for days they're not stupid. They're not hollow. They're not empty victims waiting for people to, to whisk them off into the sex trade, that they're very savvy. They know what's, right. what's going on. And, 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 but I think that's what makes them frightening is their agency, is their independence, right. is their, their yeah. willingness to express their sexuality without shame. Yeah. And there's another added feature in terms of like a risk factor, which is something that is definitely true. And that is the way that some traffickers, they often select the people who they want to focus on, you know, under the guise of dating and romance. Mm. So romance is sometimes used as part of, of, of the ticket in. And so Part of me, you know, I think that's important to acknowledge. It's not like all young girls are just, you know, totally in control of their own lives and not at any risk. And I know that's not what you're saying, but I just think that the romance piece is even more complicated when we realize that it is a very common approach used, you know, on dating apps, on various kinds of websites, you know, in person, those kinds of things, right? And it's targeting young women in a way. I think that romance piece is used on women of all ages, it's just the yes. motivation changes. Yes. So with young girls, it could be trafficking. And with older women, it's money fraud. and yeah, fraud. Yeah. And and th- so I, I, you're right to, to, to point that out, that that is usually a, a, like that, that can be an issue. And, and these, you see that with, with young girls, you know, you'll do anything for love. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Did you have something you want? Yeah. To Sorry. I, it's, it, it always strikes me when like this organization you're talking about, or in the case of the UK where they put, they were trying to put more limitations on adult content websites to the point that you need age verification before you get like, they have these portals you have to go through before you can get on through their, through your local internet provider before you can get onto Pornhub or something like that. And the justification, the reason they put it out is, well, you know, we're trying to stop child pornography. And how can you argue with stopping child pornography? Everybody who's a, a reasonable person doesn't want that to exist, but by painting all pornography as child pornography, or it's like all sex work is trafficking. You know, you definitely want to stop trafficking, but it leaves out this whole other side of the conversation. And the legislation that is put forward, like here in Canada, where there, where we adopt the Nordic model for, for, for sex work, where, if, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, where it's legal to sell, but illegal to buy, well, that's always been the case with the constitutional law in Canada. Okay. It's a it's a, a borrow over uh, from the British system. Right. Prostitution has never been illegal, but it's everything that that relates to the actual doing or living right. off of or selling or communicating for 
and now more recently advertising, right. those things are deemed illegal. Yes. And with the Nord with and the Nordic emphasis is often about targeting and shaming the Johns. Right. Right. Which is a very it's a very problematic and long-term data has shown that it is not a good approach. Well, all it does is drive it underground. When you eliminate the ways for people to advertise and vet their clients properly, and also for law enforcement to try and and suss out the you know the, the the bad actors that are in there by using the same public message boards and things like that. When you close that down, you make it impossible for for the for sex workers to be safe in in and practice yeah. their trade in a safe manner. Yeah, and it can also really decrease the number of clients, which mean that people have to work longer. And perhaps there is, you know, maybe an impetus to engage in less safe practices because clients are hard to come by. Yeah. All sorts of things flow from this that are nothing but harmful. Yeah, that was, a, that was just weighing on me the, the way the, the conflation of, of yes. factors to try and play on people's morality, right? Well, it's it's such a it's because it's a false dichotomy, yeah. right? It's it you know, it, well you're you, you're anti anti trafficking, right? Like you have to be for all of this because otherwise you're for trafficking, and that's I think that's probably the main issue with conflating sex work and trafficking is that well you can you can be pro-sex work and pro-sex worker and anti-trafficking at the same time. But it seems like with these organizations and with this, you know, with these groups and media push, you don't have that option. And that's, I feel like that's, that's what you're trying to do is to separate those issues from within that, because, because there's too, there's too many organizations and too many players that are trying to conflate those things. And then it's about, you know, is 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 it about you know moralizing or is it about protection and about and and not looking at the deeper social issues you know instead of pulling people out of the river we need to go further up the river and figure out why they're falling in yeah and also recognizing that some of them you know to continue with the analogy want to be in the river yeah don't don't take away they're my, swimming in the river leave them alone <laughs> Don't take away my choice, right? And sure. we think about the way that, you know, the gig, gig economy and the way that the sex industry has become even more, more diverse, right? And, you know, OnlyFans and camming and all these kinds of ways of making money through whether it's sexual performance or actual like physical exchange, all kinds of sexual industries have emerged, you know, in the past even five to 10 years. A lot of them are mediated through different kinds of technology. And, you know, for a number of reasons, it is a vital source of financial survival, as well as people's political identities and how they receive, as well as provide pleasure to people. Like, it's incredibly important to millions and millions and millions of people on all sides of the equation, right? And that is something that is terrifying to a lot of people within sort of, you know, the conservative establishment. Also, what is terrifying to them is that they're not making money off of it. Mm. Mm -hmm. This is an independent form of survival and thriving in a lot of instances. A lot of people make can make a lot lot of money doing this, too. And and that 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 is something that I think frightens a lot of the establishment is women having money, because whether you agree with it or not, in a lot of ways in society, money is power. 
And I was actually listening to a podcast about uh, the Miss America pageant about uh, Vanessa Williams. Um, mm. when she got stripped of her title in 1984 because of the nude photos that came out that she had done previously. Yeah. And it wasn't the nude nudity that got her title stripped. It was the, because she was, these were photos with another woman and it was a type of sexuality mm. that the pageant was not comfortable with. And the society was not comfortable with at the time, but why I bring that up is because all of these pageants never gave any money as prizes. It was always, you know, like scholarships and, and those kinds of things. And it's like, why can't women have money? Why can't, because the, the idea of women having that kind of power is frightening. Well, especially when it's, when it's not tied up with, with a male. Right. Exactly. And also money that is earned through one's body has always been um, it's always been a source of like tremendous interest as well as tremendous panic. You know, that is definitely true. Yeah, because I and, and I think that's why a lot you you find a lot of men, especially in the manosphere and uh, the red pilled men are just freaking you. You see I see stuff all the time about this chick and her only fans, she used to have this, now she has only fans. And this, this vitriol that is, is hurled at, at women that choose to make a living doing this and do very well at this, they can't stand it. And it's part of it is because of women having money. Part of it is because they're earning it with their bodies the way they want to do it. And it's, it's, it's a really troubling trend to watch that because really if you want to talk about from a safety standpoint camming and only fans super safe much safer than being out on on the street and worried about disease and violence and 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 arrest and those kinds of things like all of those i think you're you're so right that you know there's a lot of people out there that really don't are very threatened by that by women making money a or women making money any way they see fit making money. Yeah. And it's also tied up with changes that are going on in different forms of masculinity too. Right. Because I think there is, unfortunately, this is why patriarchy fucking sucks for everybody because there's an idea that if a woman is earning money independently through pleasure and or pleasuring other people, pleasuring herself, there is a strange way that that is often seen as some sort of rejection of them. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's tied into it destabilizes everything. Right. And really provides a justification. You know, how could she do this? You know, I am not getting this. This is, you know, and the media is projecting these these images is larger than life, even though it is people's real real life. I mean, people have filters and, you know, bodies that look remarkably impossible. (laughs) I know that they do exist, but and the fact that it's not including them or that they perhaps don't have an interesting, satisfying sex life within the patriarchal system that is used often as fodder or justification for the kinds of violence that we see in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Right. And also these women are held up to be emblematic of all that is wrong with the system. Right. And what is wrong with the system is that the women are doing this on their own. Right. And perhaps he doesn't have a good sex life. It's not my fucking problem. <laughs> right. But he makes it my problem by doing things like this. He makes it all of women's problems and men's problems too. You know, not all men, no shit. No shit. That hashtag is so fucking irritating. <laughs> yeah. 
It's just like grow up and listen to what we're saying. It is undeniable. The young woman in the UK who was walking home took all the precautions. Who murdered her? It was not just some random person. It was a male police officer, was it not? Yes, it was. Look at the rates of femicide that are going on during the pandemic. It's not, we're not making this up. It's not some radical feminist discourse. It is reality that is expressed in the bodies of people, women. So. Absolutely. You know, I'm totally obsessed with TikTok right now because there's a lot of great stuff on there. I, I mean, it's a nice know, escape. It's a, it's great. I mean, there's cat stuff. There's, but, but there's some People really. Send it to me. Yeah, I'm some re- I will send it to you. There's some really great stuff about this. Exactly what you're talking about. This pushback against the hashtag not all men. You yeah. know, one in particular where it's, it's you know, uh, feminism is is just about hating men and then not all men. That's the only time that it's appropriate where feminism is anti-men, not all men, just you pieces of shit out there that are, you know, doing the, and you, you brought up the case in the UK, just absolutely terrifying. And something that, that is a, a recurring theme with violence against women. And this was also a case that came out of, of the UK in the late 1970s. There was a killer on the loose in Britain and he was apparently just killing sex workers, prostitutes. And I was struck by how that made everybody feel better. It was, it was kind of a, a third rate byline in the newspaper. Somebody's out killing prostitutes and that's fine. Until he murdered a woman that was so obviously not a sex worker. And then all of a sudden everybody sat up and took notice. And it, it never ceases to amaze me the dehumanization of sex workers that happens. And it's been happening for decades and decades. And, and even now with the situation in Atlanta, you know, they were massage workers, they were Asian Americans, they, they were human beings that just for, for whatever reason, he decided they have to go. And I wonder if you could, you know, kind of speak to that about what is it in our society that makes us feel okay about dehumanizing people involved in sex work so that we feel safer that, Oh, it's, it's okay. Cause that's only, it's just violence against sex workers. Like yeah. that's okay. We don't have to worry. They're not us. Cause, Cause we're good. We're good girls. Right. And so the example from the seventies is important to bring up, but there are more recent examples too, right? You think of Gary Ridgway in the mm-hmm. state and his contemporary, you know, Robert Picton. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Who was, charged in 2002 in the first trial there was only one trial because it was too expensive i was living in vancouver during that time wow one trial in 2007 and he admitted to i'm talking about picton he admitted to killing 49 and wanted to do one more so he could beat or you know meet gary ridgeway's number wow right and so that was a really powerful moment to be living there. And I happened to also be in Vancouver in 2013, 2012, when the um, inquiry into the mismanagement, if you can say that, of the Vancouver Police Department and other people involved, i.e. the inaction, the fact that the majority of the women were Indigenous and that no one listened to them, and just the way that the state colluded with this particular form of violence to um, really prevent any kind of measures to investigating it properly. And the thing about the Picton situation also is that unlike a lot of murders, there was no, there were no bodies. 
Mm -hmm. right. when there is an absence of a body, it can complicate and slow an investigation for obvious reasons. But, you know, the fact that, you know, women were being told by the police, oh, you know, so-and-so, well, they haven't got their welfare check yet. So, you know, something must be wrong or just wait, or, you know, maybe she's just doing this, or, you know, maybe she's, you know, all of these degrading, degrading, dehumanizing kinds of things were happening on, 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 on a regular basis by the people who were supposed to be helping protect them, just like any other citizen of our country, but they weren't. Right. And so that's an important way that that sex and gender, as well as race, are often brought into the different forms of uh, dehumanization that 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 occur. And again, these are already groups that are already marginalized or where, you know, it's, it's challenging to be a female. It's challenging to be an indigenous person. Mm -hmm. You know, it's challenging to engage in a profession that is seen as morally distasteful and illegal, even though people who participate in it as clients come from all echelons in society and always have and always will, right? There is a fear associated with independent women and independent kinds of sexuality under patriarchy. And there mm -hmm. is also a need to dehumanize certain groups of people like indigenous people, like black people, like Asian people mm -hmm. as a way of maintaining the status quo. Yes. Because there is some, some, some twisted idea that if we care about these kinds of things, the system that we have worked so hard to create will somehow dissolve and it will leave some of us behind. And it's like, well, that's how change works, bro. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. There's always going to be a place for everybody. It just might not look what, like what it does now. And that doesn't need to be talked about or you know, perceived as a threat. But the fact that we don't talk about these things and the way that we respond to violence against Indigenous people is always with a fucking apology. Mm. Decades, fucking centuries later, and there's 150 communities where they still can't drink their water. Right. They don't need another apology, I don't think. I'm, I don't mean to speak for anybody. and That's not what I'm doing. But an apology doesn't mean anything without action. Mm -hmm. And we need to change the way that we talk about each other it's not rocket science, but we refuse to do it because we think that the established order is the easiest. It's the most prudent. It's what we've been socialized to believe in, but it doesn't work for any of us. No system needs to get much more interesting, much more inclusive and a lot looser. <laughs> I think some of the scariest words in the English language are that's the way we've always done it. And there are too many people that are too invested and have too much to lose in the current system that perceive any kind of positive change as threat to them. And also by extension, those very people must have like really small balls because <laughs> if you're that afraid of a system change, that also means that you're not very adaptable. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> well, a lot of us out here are adaptable and that's like our fucking key to success. That's right. <laughs> you know what? It's about resilience. It's about, which is actually a really politically charged word. Sometimes it's really offensive, but it's about having grit and strength and determination and getting off your ass and thinking about the world and yourself in a different way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But that's a much more integrated, you know, different kind of way of looking than the standard patriarchal system. Right. And so again, you know, out with the old. So with that kind of advocacy for change, what kind of pushback have you received over the course of doing this type of research? Like what have you personally had to deal with? 
Oh my goodness. So many things. I've written about it here, here, here and there. Well, the local situation in London, a lot of the work that I have done over the years was kind of resisted by certain folks in this municipal kind of system whose job is to design different programs and policies that can better reflect where different groups of people are at. And when I began doing this work, um, like homelessness was on the like local political agenda and sex work was kind of included in that homelessness portfolio. And I was like, eh, I don't really know if that's the best place for it. I think it deserves its own portfolio. <laughs> and guess what? I have all this amazing data that I'm super happy to share with you. And it's like, you're welcome. But what I got instead was dismissal. I got, I was humiliated in public at more than one meeting that was a conglomerate of different service providers. And I was the lone researcher because I was the only one doing sex work research at the time in the city. You know, we're talking about different programs and approaches to new policies for different groups of people in sex work, primarily women. And at that point, Bill C-36 had just passed. So this is quite a while ago. And there was no mention of the legal changes that were underfoot. And I put up my, my hand and said, well, you know, given the fact that this just passed last Tuesday and I was shut down in a, man, in a nanosecond, this is not a forum for us to discuss legal changes. And I was like, well, how can we not talk about this when this is really germane to why we are all here this morning? Mm -hmm. And I completely got cut off and it was just like, I was embarrassed. I was angry. I was humiliated. I received a lot of emails from colleagues who were there who were just like, what the actual fuck just happened? We're so sorry that that happened to you. We use your research all the time. Thank you. Keep going. Mm. And so there were a couple of other instances like that. Uh, I was wanting to partner with um, some sex work agencies, uh, like support, like sex work, experiential driven groups in different cities in Ontario. And there were some people there who really at the beginning of our discussion seemed to be interested in, in a partnership. And then one thing led to another and the relationships really fell apart and it was really complicated, but actually one of the members from this one city where I had been in talks about doing a collaborative research project, I was giving a, a talk at a university in one of those cities and she came to the talk and she was wearing sunglasses and she had the word karma taped to her sunglasses. The karma is in the title of the talk I was giving. So it was a form of intimidation. And she also waited for me outside of the door to the point where the organizer was like, I think Trina, we should leave by the back door. And it was brought to my attention that she was putting up all of these posters that looked like a recruitment poster, but it had the title of my different talks and was like totally disparaging me. And, you know, just like it was it was so traumatic. I can't even begin to tell you. Wow. And so I had to like speak with like my dean and then they're like it was like I was obviously I wasn't going to take this lying down, mm -hmm. but I will never go back to that city. And it's strange, you know, when I was in the morning getting ready to deliver that talk, I really had a bad feeling in my stomach. And I'm like, why am I feeling so nervous? Like this is like normally like it's like, hey, this is, you know, I was working out some cool ideas, which eventually began began or found their way into a publication a few years later, but I was stoked about this. Right. Mm -hmm. But I know that I, you know, my, my, my gut was, was, was warning me. And I just, I could have never anticipated that. And that's, that's within 
the movement, right? That's right. But it's also very important to draw attention to that, that it's not just like the feminist kind of movement in the sex work movement. We are not all on the same page, even if we are pro, pro, pro sex work and that's fine. But I mean, we need to acknowledge how complicated and challenging that is. Similar to when I went to India, it wasn't talking with the women that was the most, it was the doing, it was the living. Same with this, it was the doing of the sex work research and being involved in that very, very divisive and often very toxic environment that was like, I'm not doing another sex work project. You know, I've been in, in, in these trenches for over 20 years. It's too much. It's too much. I feel like I've made quite a significant contribution in a lot of ways. I will continue to be involved as an advocate, you know, ally, however I can. Mm -hmm. But I need to, I need to come out. I, I need to exit for myself. And I've also experienced what's referred to as courtesy stigma, which is a really strange term. But, you know, referring to the way that when you do work with different kinds of groups that are vulnerable or stigmatized, often you kind of get stigmatized. So what an example you know, we were setting up, you know, sort of display case at the university, different pictures of, you know, doing research or people in the field or the lab or whatever. And a senior colleague of mine, and I was not yet tenured at this moment, and she was actually on the PNT promotion and tenure committee, thinking about, you know, different things that we could each include in the showcase in terms of the visual representations of the work that we do. And she looked at me and she was like, well, yeah, Trina, like you couldn't really put anything in there. And I was like, I had sort of laughed it off in that moment, mm -hmm. but the moment that that meeting disbanded, I sent her a very terse, very brief email. And literally the moment I pressed send, my office telephone rang wow. and, there, and there she is apologizing, apologizing, apologizing. I didn't mean it like that. I didn't. What did you mean? How did you mean it exactly? Yeah. How was I supposed to take that? I really wasn't all that confused. And then she proceeded to, as a way to assuage her reaction, mm -hmm. to draw parallels between the work that I do and like the private consulting that she does with clients who want to reduce their weight, saying it's similar. And I'm like, I'm imagining the brief email reading, fuck all the way off. That's, that's what I, that's what I, how I imagine that email going <laughs> in your head anyway. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm pretty adept at <laughs> being pointed mm -hmm. and pointed. Yes. <laughs> but in, in a way that it's like, bro, you can't, you can't come back. Like you can, you need to, you need to own up before you even reply mm -hmm. or reply all you need to think about what you did. Mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. Wow. So for many instances, you know, my students in general have been the ones, you know, a lot of them had, you know, preconceptions, misconceptions. How could they not living in this society, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why in a lot of my courses, I have them include, I have them read things, not just my own work or the work of like amazing colleagues in the field, but also novels, memoirs, mm -hmm. stuff written by family members, stuff written by women themselves, poetry. You know, that's a way that that kind of artistic work does the work of revealing the human face and the multiplicity and the complexities in a way that even the you know most beautifully crafted book chapter or journal article can't do quite as effectively right right so and you know you know so rewarding reading you know their final exam questions or their essays you know i didn't know that sex workers were people wow and now that i and now i do right and that's the same with my colleagues because, you know, 
this was a, a, a teaching moment, you could say, when I was treated like that and the people who I care about were ta- talked about like that by my colleague. I view a lot of the work that I do, the invisible labor of this work, it's about re-educating the people around me who are also in positions of tremendous authority, educating the next generation, mm-hmm. but we're also educating each other. And if we're not, then we're, you know, that's kind of a boring place to work. And there's a lot of education that needs to happen, but that's the additional emotional burden of doing this kind of work. I couldn't just sit there and take that. Fuck no, right? No, no. But part of the thing of doing this kind of work, it's different than doing straightforward, a little bit less complex, you know, more palatable work is that that kind of additional emotional and more morally charged labor is just not required because it's already it's sort of standard, right? It's not controversial. It doesn't threaten. It doesn't provoke, right? It doesn't destabilize in any way, shape, or form. Well, and that that exam question that you referred to, that alone is the reason to do that work. And to and to, because, I mean, that is so huge for a, like all of your students to learn that from you and through you. Because they're coming up with their own, I mean, part of their own protection is also seeing mm-hmm. an entire other group as other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. If, 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 if the powers that be and their parents can make them feel like, oh, no, 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 that's, you're this type of person. And those are other type of person, people. And for them to come into your space and learn that that's not the case Mm-hmm. That's such a huge thing because I, I, and I think that's why it's so shocking when those kinds of critiques and those kinds of, of arrows come from other women and you think, bro, like, I'm sure that's why that's, you what, were... that's what patriarchy does, right? Yeah. It's, like like it's, you said, it fucks for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it pits women against each other. It pits, yeah. you know, and, and so that I'm sure that I can imagine your shock in that moment and having to take a beat. And go. I need to send an email <laughs> because it it is it's 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 so shocking in in the moment where you imagine like this is we're supposed to be supporting each other in this academic sphere and this the the, the aims of of research is for further understanding and and just to have that happen is just like and I'm so <laughs> so it doesn't shock me at all that that was the response and and. And and good for you for for calling that out. And I couldn't have done anything else. I could no. not have done anything else. And I did not wait until I got tenure to speak to speak up. I could not imagine just sitting there. I have to do that all the time as a woman, anyways, for people in conversations that no one else listens to, ways that I am treated in the world that no one else sees. I have to swallow shit all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not going to do it when someone's talking about people that I care about. That's it. You know, and, you know, I share that example with a number of people. And I can't believe that happened at the university. Hmm. The university is part of this messed up society in which we (laughs) live. It Hmm. is not an ivory tower. So just get that out of your head. Mm -hmm. It's got lots of fabulous people who think lots of great things, but it's got a lot of people who have very myopic views on the world and have had lives that are pretty fucking square. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, well, people that are living in that ivory tower. Yeah. God. <laughs> oh, thank you. The other article that really jumped out at me was the mm. shared precarities and maternal subjectivities. So I don't know if you want to 
speak to that at all? Because it seems like a little bit of a, an offshoot from what we were talking about. It's a project that I was involved in with some American colleagues. And it's, uh, it's received a lot of really good at good, like, traction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's nice to talk about because it's looking at the way that not only sex work is stigmatized, but part of that stigmatization has to do with the way that women, we're talking about women in particular in this instance, are often divorced from the things that render someone to be seen as a human, which involves mm. family, which involves a social context that looks kind of similar to ours in the sense that not only do these women have mothers, but they're very uh, huge, a huge proportion, especially in different kinds of uh, aspects of the trade. You know, the majority of women are often mothers. They are often mothers. But one of the things, you know, when we were thinking about the data, and I really like my contribution to the paper in this regard, is that when you're doing interviews with women, and we're talking street-based women, learned over 20 plus years of doing this, this kind of work, is that you really have to assess where each person is at, obviously, for the kinds of questions that you ask in the interview. In particular, the question of children is probably is the one that you have to deal with with the most care. Mm-hmm. Because although the majority of women are, are moms, the majority of them don't have their children for an, any right. number of reasons, including state intervention, including family intervention. Sometimes it's, it's for the best, but sometimes it's not. And even if it is for the best, it haunts them because they are denied citizenship in so many ways. And when they're denied their kids, which is often given the trauma that a lot of them have experienced, their kids are usually the only things that they talk about wanting to live for. Mm. And when that is taken away from them, that's really, really, really hard to live with and live through and think about yourself as a valuable individual, especially when you live in a society that everywhere you turn, you're told that you're nothing but shit. Yeah. So talking about kids and talking about being a mom, that's why this paper is really powerful, I think, because it's a really in-depth exploration of it, you know, obviously using the women's experiences and words as the, you know, the framework for our analysis. But I think that's why it's getting a lot, a lot of of attention, because it's really unpacking motherhood in in a very rich, rich, complicated way. I, I totally agree. And I, and this was, this was another one that, that hit me so hard. And I, because a couple of things, mm. one is, and, and this was kind of my own, you know, it was kind of my own bias showing and my own kind of ideas when you think just not even thinking about these women as mothers where you go, Oh my God, like I didn't even think about what happens when they have children or, you know, and you, you talk about them at the, the, most of your, the people involved in this were, are street involved women. And when you look at what is expected of mothers, just in general, <sighs> like, you so know, the, yeah, it's, cr- it's crazy. Like the concept of motherhood probably over the last three or four decades has just, yeah. it, it, it's, it's at a pitch that makes women feel like they could never possibly live up to what is expected. Yeah. And, and so I, I think in this context, it's so, it was so difficult to read because you think about, I, you know, I, I thought about my own, the own, the conversations that I'd had with myself and things that people have said to me and, and different expectations as, as a mother, even with just working, 
or having interests outside of my children and having to fight for those and justify to all kinds of people. No, I'm not selfish. No, I'm not a bad mom. And you think about all of those things are magnified to the nth degree when you're talking about street involved women who, like you said, they live for their children and sometimes they don't see them at all. I think one story that really was so difficult was Nola's story and her children, her, her child was, it was an open adoption. And so she would visit every, every so often. And then at a certain point just stopped because it, it was sort of posited to her that that was that inconsistency was seen as irresponsible and damaging to the child. And I think that that whole idea of motherhood is what contributes to that, to that feeling that if I can't be there eyeballs deep all the time involved in everything, then there's no value with me being in that child's life at all. And that's such like, that is such erroneous thinking and idea that, and then, and then you have like, class and privilege involved in that as well, where it's like, well, these people can do so much more for my child. So I'm just going to leave that to them. I have no place here. Like you were saying, when all you hear from all sides is what a piece of shit you are. And that just adds how many other layers on top of Mm -hmm. that. It was so heartbreaking to read. It was. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is. But you know what? They resist that. They resist that. They resist all of those stigmatizing ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, like, who are you to take my kids away? Right. Okay, you might take my kids away, but don't don't say that I'm not their mother. I'm their mother. Right. And that's one of the important insights that we draw attention to is the fact that just because they don't have their kids doesn't mean they're not a mom. Right. The importance of that maternal identity, irrespective of where the children are, is very, very, I think that's one of the most unique contributions of the paper as well, Mm -hmm. is that you don't need to have your kids to be a mom. Right. And that that is something that a lot of them hang their hats on in terms of being proud of, even though they know they may have fucked up a little bit. Whose mother hasn't? Yeah, who hasn't? (laughs) But, you know, don't take that away. And a lot of times, they talk about it in a way where they put it somewhere inside themselves, somewhere far away. But that can, you know, when it's still there, it's still there. And it's, but no one really usually talks about it with them, except in ways that reinforce the idea of pathology, of failure, right? So when we were having these conversations and allowing space for both of us to cry, or, you know, I know that Susan experienced the same thing. And so did Kira, who's another author in the paper, speaking with this very, very charged conversations, but it's also spaces, especially for Susan, who is a mom as well, Mm -hmm. to talk about her own kids and her own failings and her own successes and the way that she misses her kid too sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't have any kids of my own, but I can talk about other things, you know, my experiences with different people in my life and stuff like that. I'm not saying I'm trying to, you know, say that my life is the same as the women I'm talking to, but to create space to talk about it in a caring way, you know, really was very transformative. Did you get an opportunity to speak to, like, I, I wonder what the perspectives are of adult children? of some of these street involved women, like it mm-hmm. depends on the narrative that they've been fed all their lives. And I think that's another reason why we need to change the narrative and to change 
the the perception around sex work and sex workers because you know that that changes the way you think about a parent that may be street involved or struggling with addictions or what have you and look at them in a different way rather than just how fucked up they are or that they abandoned you or you know changing the narrative around that and employing a little bit more compassion and appreciating and accepting what role no matter how small that person plays in your life because they are your mother right it's, it's yeah. that's an important part of changing yeah. the narrative around all of this absolutely and it's also you know these things have implications you know different levels of service provision where a lot of the people interface with on a regular basis and have to ask and are asked all these questions about age, family, blah, 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 blah. You know, we need to change the way those kind of intake, you know, that mm. intake process. You think how many different intake processes a lot of these women have to go through on mm. a monthly, on a weekly basis to get mm. access to different kinds of services, right? So that kind of data, if that can inform the way that these questions are even posed, that would make a difference, you know? And a number of the Indigenous women, and this is, reflected in the in the literature and it makes sense given the ongoing tragedy of colonization is that a number of indigenous women they have intergenerational experience mm -hmm. sex work in their family many of them you know whether it's many sisters you know in the same generation or my auntie also right uh, and then sometimes you know then you see younger younger girls as well. And, you know, their point of view, and this is also borne out in the literature as well. It's like sex work is not the biggest problem in my life. No, Sex work is not the biggest problem in my life. It could be violence. It could be dope. It could be trauma. Right. Sex work is part of the way that we do things sometimes in this family, in this block, in this part of London. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's inter it's intermittent. Right. There are some women who have been involved for 20 years or 10 years, like, you know, long time involvement on a steady basis. But in general, it's kind of an ebb and flow. It's one of the emotional strategies people use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that, you know, in terms of changing the way people think about it, you know, well, maybe they don't want to be on welfare. Maybe they don't want to have a shit job where they've got to pay how much of it back to their shitty boss or whatever. Right. And get what at the end of the day, like if you think about it. It's a pretty strategic way of going about making a fair chunk of change in a short period of time. Isn't that like an economic approach that should be kind of applauded in a certain, you know, to a certain degree, provided that, you know, things are, you know, pretty safe and people are consenting? Well, especially when, especially when you're, when we look at the disdain with which people treat social safety nets and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And, and just going back to that, that docuseries about, yeah. uh, about, the murders in in the 1970s in the UK, the the very first victim was a mother of four, and she she was she was doing sex work intermittently because it was a rough time in that country economically and in that area especially, and so yeah, that was something that she was doing intermittently to provide for her kids. And I, I think one of the the most heartwarming parts of it or one of the only heartwarming parts of it was that they interview her adult son and mm -hmm. he speaks of her very lovingly and with so much compassion and empathy of what she was trying to achieve at that time. Mm -hmm. 
and how she was, you know, trying to take care of them. And I thought that is a completely different perspective than you would normally get. I mean, how many male serial killers, you know, they blame the mother was doing sex work or the mother was doing the, you know, and, and that's when you talked before about excuses being made for violence against women is something that another woman did or that Mm -hmm. other women have done. Mm -hmm. And, and so I thought that was, that was a really important component of that docuseries was them interviewing her adult son and Mm -hmm. how he spoke of her. And again, something else that a lot of people probably wouldn't think about, about it is a a, a savvy economic strategy. Reminds me a little bit of, of the situation for a lot of a lot of people in Cuba. I worked in Cuba for several years and sex work there is, there's a lot of sex tourism that, that happens there, but there are a lot of women that wouldn't identify as sex workers per se, but because of the state of the government system there and very fixed salaries at, at, at very low levels, it wasn't uncommon for a woman who was a lawyer or a veterinarian or a nurse or any profession to go to Havana for the weekend and over the course of a weekend could make a year's salary yeah. doing something that was fun going out to, you know, for them in, in a way that wasn't threatening and that was empowering and economically was extremely beneficial to, to their family. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to be in the river. Yeah, they were swimming in the river. Yeah. And and it was such a different perception to the way sex work is viewed in this culture that I grew up in, where it is only disadvantaged people. It is only exploitative. It is, is only dangerous and negative. And both the purveyors and the the consumers of it are damaged in, in some way else why would they be in this system right and i don't know i'm not saying that it should be like cuba everywhere but i think that attitude is a lot lot more healthy than the way that it's approached here and sounds like in the experience in in reading your research and and the things that you've done the way it's perceived in those parts of the world where you you have kind of worked in that area yeah what would you like to leave us with today Hmm. that is a good question let's see Well, I think advocating for different kinds of partnerships with media and other sort of public venues that are really influential vehicles through which messages get relayed, you know, about finding different ways to create space to have these alternative dialogues so that they're not just siloed, which a lot of times they are, or they're an exclusive story with what who breaks the mold. Fuck, the mold's been broken for a long time. <laughs> and it's much more interesting to talk about things in a more human, diverse way. How could mm-hmm. it not be? So including these kinds of discussions when we're talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion, no matter what the actual focus is, is a way of really sort of reinvigorating the social narratives and really thinking about interesting partnerships you know, different ways to talk about it, you know, through the economic lens, perhaps, like, a lot of these people are out there busting their butts, but they're doing it really smart. You know, why don't we look at that and acknowledge that? Does it mean that there's not drugs or trauma? Sure. But it's not it's not just the victim, right? And no one wants to be a victim. They want to be seen as full people in their own right, you know, preferably being represented in their own words. 
And so I think, yeah, just, you know, really sort of ongoing advocacy and thoughtful thinking about ways that we can refresh the dialogue together. And uh, that can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Me too. Thank you so much for for talking with us today. Again, it was so nice to have you back and for sharing your research and your experience with us. I think think your voice is such an important one in all of these arenas. And yeah, I think this is Mm -hmm. such an important conversation to have today. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know what what part three is going to be, but... I know. I'm like, okay. And next, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we'll come up with something that, mm-hmm. that won't take long to yeah. figure out, but yeah, this was great. Okay, well, thank you so much for asking me. And even though I am sort of on the swan song on the way out in terms of this particular field, I mean, as you can hear and see, this will always be such an important part of my life. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the opportunity to revisit some old things and then bring in a lot of like contemporary stuff Mm because, you know, not a lot of people ask or give you enough space to talk about the different aspects of it. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Our pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Richards. Okay. She's so great. Yeah. We love Trina. We do. Some heavy stuff, though, and the emotional toll it takes to do that kind of research mm-hmm. or any kind of research generally where you have to take yourself out of everything you've ever known mm-hmm. and just plunk, drop yourself in the middle of, of something that's so completely different, language, culture, living situation, all of that. I've seen a lot of my colleagues in my graduate programs drop out, mm-hmm. even partway through a PhD. Because field work and all the realities of that were just too much. And then there's the emotionality that you're not ready for. Like when your colleagues are giving you shit. Yeah. Oh, we can't we can't display your work in here. What is, is it just gonna be like yeah, fishnet stocking oh and, yeah. and leather minis? <sighs> anyway, I think that was a really important conversation mm-hmm. to have with her. Yeah. What uh, what is your take home from this today? I think my take home is and I, I, I kind of talked about it a little bit in the conversation, but the the way that people take advocates, especially advocates for sex workers, mm-hmm. how they take this advocacy that they want to do, protecting sex workers mm-hmm. and conflating it with trafficking. Like there's no voluntary sex work. Like mm-hmm, if they're in mm-hmm. sex work, they must be a victim of something. Mm-hmm. Their circumstance, you know, trafficking, mm-hmm. something like that. And I think it's, and we've seen this in 2020 with the rise of a lot of far-right rhetoric mm-hmm. that save the children hashtag, mm-hmm. where you find something that, of course, if you're a decent human being, you must support. But maybe. But maybe you need to take a little bit of a different look at all of it and go, yeah, not every person who is in sex work is a victim of their circumstances. Mm. That it is a job that many people choose to do mm-hmm. and have agency and that you can't just strip that agency away from them simply by virtue of you not agreeing with the way that they earn a living. Yeah. So that was my that was my kind of take home from all of this. What about yours? I think we need to be obviously trafficking is an issue that needs to be dealt with. Obviously child pornography is an issue that needs to be dealt with. But I also think that a lot of women, young and like young women and adult women are being swallowed up in these created moral panics mm-hmm. 
that are really just about another way to control women and yeah. control women's sexuality yeah, and criminalize, criminalize the sexuality of women because it's too scary yeah. for people to, to accept. And so I, I, that, that is something. And, and my other take home is that sometimes shit comes from inside your circle. Yeah. So that, that just fucking blew my mind. So I, so just, just be wary of that, you know, just. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't ever let your guard down. It seems. No, it doesn't seem like that, does it? Mm -mm. But you know what? When you know that you are doing something with compassion and empathy and an eye to opening up the conversation and opening up and changing a narrative that doesn't seem to work for anyone except a very small group of people, keep keep going with that shit. Keep going with that. Yeah. All right. Well, like and subscribe. Follow Dr. Trina Orchard on all the social media links that we'll put in the show notes. Yeah. And uh, leave a review. Share the podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.